we have officially begun, folks. Um, we are coming at you live from uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, in this gorgeous opulent theater called the Academy of Music Theater. Um, just fantastic. We are fresh uh, from seeing Aerial Phenomenon, and uh, tonight we have some very special guests. Um, we have behind me and on your screen, it will be somewhere on the screen, we have Gunter Hohenbrau, who just went to the main Latin site, which was the King Saul. But of course, that area was very flat and cut grass. It, we didn't see any impression on the ground as such. So when I came out the following weekend with a work colleague, um, I scanned the ground and I found two oval shapes in the ground, in the long grass, where the other boys told me they saw some craft landing. And funny enough, it had a slightly uh, clockwise swirl in each of the ovals, one large oval and one small oval. And I also took samples of the soil to force and to set for analysis. I uh, didn't find anything unusual in the samples that, um, that uh, came back. And also, um, yeah, I mean, the most amazing things I saw were the drawings. Uh, they came back, which was cool, quite consistent. And I gave, I remember when I met John Mack, at a drawing conference, which I did, which I gave him. And uh, he asked if he could just take that. I mean, he used it. I still have a copy someone sent me that Mack took. Because when he came in November, it's, um, he took that back with him. I'm going to, thank you, Gunter. I'm going to, uh, to uh, talk, go through some of the questions here and see if we can answer them. Uh, no guarantees that we're gonna give you answers that, uh, <laughs> um, that uh, will appease uh, everyone. But um, um, were the, I wanna talk about here, um, being an experiencer, this is someone in the audience here, being an experiencer, I am curious, are any of these students um, still being contacted that you know of? That's for me? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so, or go ahead, Gunter, if you want to. Yeah, go ahead, Gunter, and thank you, Gunter, for uh, doing a good job when you were there. Really, like, at least you, you covered all the bases, you know, you got soil samples. You did, you did really good work. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Do you know, if, the question was, do you know of any students that are still having these experiences um, after Gunter? Do you have any uh, knowledge of that? Well, we, we had some of the kids, some of them are living in the UK, because a lot of them scattered after the event and the, the school authorities, they were getting feeling that the kids were being disturbed so much. We never had the opportunity after John Mack left to actually speak to the kids because a lot of parents or some of the parents were upset about it and think that even this John and Colin Mackey, the headmaster, they weren't happy what was happening because it was kind of like disturbing the kids. He was saying some of the kids were not being disturbed. So we respected that and we left them. Um, obviously, Randall, which 
you know, has done a fantastic job tracking down a lot of the witnesses and people involved in the case was able to go back while they are the adults now and actually talk to them. Um, I mean, for myself, I've never really had the opportunity to track those kids later down because there was a lot of turmoil in Zimbabwe soon after with the politics there. Uh, I left Zimbabwe uh, to come here and in the UK now. And even some of the kids in the UK, like this one, I believe, is here in the UK. Um, I would love to meet her, to talk in detail with her, you know, just discover what she feels after all these years. I'm sure Randall has spoken to her more often than I have. Mm. Um, let's kind of go right into. Um, the big question here. Um, on a scale from one to 10, anyone here can answer this. On a scale of one to 10, how ready is, is humanity for open contact or official public disclosure? And I want to get everyone's uh, take on that here, starting with you, Randy. Uh, that's a really good question. I think it's been a concern for an awfully long time. Uh, I've been told by some people that I eminently um, respect that uh, that, that we, you know, we weren't, they were concerned with public panic. Um, so, I don't know, I, I think, uh, I think this is the time, and I also feel like, I know this may sound strange, but after I really understood the phenomenon more, I realized how valuable this would be to any government as far as putting down a card at a specific time when we had a lot of problems, you know. Say, oh, this one's gonna rock the boat. We're gonna use it now. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of the, what I'm seeing. Um, I hope that wasn't too, uh, is that understandable? Give me the number. There, there's gonna be subtitles underneath this. Oh, how close are we? It's I'm gonna rewrite those. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's happening. No, I, I would give it a 10. 10? Yeah. Christopher? I mean, I think people are, are uh, open to it in ways they haven't been. Uh, however, I think they're still gonna be freaked the hell out when it does. So, I don't know what a number is. Uh, <laughs> you know, over five and less than 10. Okay, uh, Whitley, same question. Uh, and how ready is humanity for open contact? I don't think we're at all ready for open contact. I think that the great majority of human beings have not been prepared in any way whatsoever. I believe that the close encounter witnesses in some part are probably capable of making some kind of a coherent relationship with the visitors. But I believe if uh, this actually came into general open contact, it would be a catastrophe. Uh, we we would, would not be able to handle it. They're, I, I have them in my life, and they're not easy to deal with at all. They're very, very, very different from us. Uh, and there's many different shadings of their of them as well. And, uh, if you've met one, you're not 
by no means met them all. And uh, a lot of close encounter witnesses cope very well, but it takes years of, of, of work to get to the point where your relationship is beneficial and even somewhat comprehensible because their vision of reality is so very different from ours. Um, I think that it's possible that as the planet comes to a climax in the sense of its ability to support life, and that will happen, well, it's already happening, but it's going to accelerate fairly dramatically over the next few years, they may begin to emerge in a more direct way. And hopefully, in some way that is helpful to us, because all the warnings we've been given so far, as I said earlier, have not really been very penetrated the culture very deeply. Um, but for example, to give you an idea of what's going to happen if, say, they showed up on the White House lawn, the first thing that would happen would be that all the religious leaders would start to speak out, and then um, we. They would think that they were versions of us wearing funny skin, and they're not. Their brains are differently structured, and they see the universe in an entirely different way, and this, they see reality in a different way, and us in a very different way than we see ourselves. And bridging that gap is going to be the single greatest human achievement in history and probably quite possibly the single greatest achievement in their history too if it can even be done mm. i'm going to give that a two um <laughs> generous yeah <laughs> um gunter quickly same question to you yeah i don't i don't know how ready we are um for, I think for myself personally, I feel disclosure has happened. I feel I, I wouldn't be kind of shocked if it happened, but I do feel um, that for the world as a whole, it's still kind of taken as a joke and as something ooh, and you know, it's a bit out there. And it's only recently, probably since the New York Times article in 2017 and the release of some of the video footage from the Navy that there has been some kind of sense of acceptance that there is something out there. But I think when they start talking about aliens, I think aliens is a bit too far for people at the moment. They can accept seeing crafts out there, but aliens on the planet abducting us, I think that's still um, you know, unacceptable in their culture, you know, beyond us. We still, scientists still think if there are aliens out there, it's too far away and they, you know, millions of light years away for them to get here is impossible with our understanding of physics. But that's our understanding of physics. What they could have achieved is way ahead of us by far. Okay. Um, 
question here regarding Jacques Vallée, um, famed UFO researcher. Uh, Jacques Vallée has recently stated that no UFO encounter after 1985 should be taken at face value. Given the um, documented interest of intelligence agencies and the black and the black hard private sector um, in staging UFO events, um, I haven't been following the staging of UFO events myself. But uh, to what degree has anyone involved in the production looked into the development of uh, psychotronic weapons capable of being deployed as active psyops? What's your clearance level again, Randall? Zero. <laughs> but you know what? I have a lot of friends that do have them, so that's kind of handy sometimes. But they're not supposed to tell me anything. Um, tell me later. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's a tough question. I, I mean, I just didn't go in that direction at all. Um, you know, you sort of sift through the whole UFO field and now called UAP studies. Um, and, you know, you find a little, a layer of, of I, I don't want to call them crazy people, but people that are struggling or having a, a difficult time. And then you sort of go down a layer and you find, um, you know, a sort of a, a mainstream crowd. And then you go further down and you, found, you find these really hardcore people who it's really affected their lives. Uh, that, that's kind of the journey I took to and you find, you hear all the stories about um, different conspiracies and things like that. But down deep, which is what was my interest was to get to those hardcore people. And I was kind of surprised actually who was there. <laughs> um, that was pretty surprising. But uh, yeah, that's all I can really say about that. Okay. Um, so on lines of conspiracy. Um, was there any government group that tried to suppress the release of your film, guys? Not to our knowledge. Officially. Right. I so. I, no, I, I, I don't know. Some weird things have happened, that's all. And I, you know, you just try to stay away from that thinking and just get the job done. Um, it's interesting stuff, though. So the DMV didn't try to stop you or the mail service? No. Okay, all right. Good to know. Um, has there been any more messages about uh, where we're headed as a, as a planet from the human race, from these uh, kids, and if so, what? As, like, you know, when you're given this information, you ruminate and everything, does it start to make clarity for any, any of these um, former students? I would say yes, um, judging by their career choices and judging by charity work or things they're doing, it changed them. Um, one of the parents I interviewed uh, of, of the twins that are in the movie, I asked him, I was like, well, well what did this do to them? And he said to me that it, it opened possibility for them in a good way, that after seeing what they saw, anything was possible. And that has really influenced their lives now. You know, they both went to great universities in the United States and um, just doing good work for people. There's, there's many like that, which I, I think comes from that uh, encounter, that thing that happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you guys know of a forum? There are several that um, people can go to 
to report this for witnesses? Uh, yes, the UFO Reporting Center, uh, that's Bob Bigelow, I believe, is that correct? I don't know if it's... Um, MUFON, I don't know, I, I mean... MUFON's the only one that I'm... Yeah, they're the largest organization to report this... Uh, for experiences. For, for experiences, for people who've seen them. Um, well, there's uh, uh, the, the there's a uh, support group that's Sarah yeah, yeah, Stuart Davis, I believe, is his name, and um, he's doing some great work because uh, it's just you know you get so much flack about things uh, around this, but I I've met that man and he's doing good work, so people can talk to each other about it because it's just it's so true what's in the film about how you just you know, you sit with it alone. So, even people that maybe in this, like the kids in the class, they don't talk about it with each other that much at all. Um, because it disturbs them on the inside, you know. Um, so anyway, I see that. Um, and, I, and I really want to put some work into helping people go through the process of what people go through when this happens, because it's, it's very similar to a lot of traumas, but there are some unique uh, parts that are unique to this kind of event. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them is your head goes, pow! <laughs> As uh, John Max said, the ontological shock. Yes, ontological shock. Having to fold a new reality into your existing reality, and these kids were not very tainted. Like when I talked to Salma Siddiq, she was kind of like, oh, so this is part of life. All right, my parents didn't tell me about that, but okay, cool. Um, whereas when you're older, it's like, no, you're, you can't exist. Um, this is a comment, not a question, which I really love. I came to see this because of my personal experience seeing a UFO up close. Other than uh, one other person I've met who had the same experience, I wanted to feel validated. Having so many children see the same thing tonight is validating. Yeah, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things we really try to focus on is, is the impact after, not the event. And that's what Emily brought and what she brought out from her experience. And I think that's the, the humanity element. Um, you know, and, and I'm glad that that is helpful to people that have had that experience. And I just hope that if you haven't or you're interested in this topic, that you just have some more compassion for people who tell you they have. And just be open um, because you never know. Yeah. Uh, Whitley, I know that this has been a big cause for you, that when you receive thousands of letters, um, uh, Anne came in and helped you. Uh, sort through this when you were kind of um, dubious of, of taking on such a huge undertaking and you, you published that I believe as well and what was that like what was when you responded what was the feedback the feelings that you got from from these people uh, can you repeat the end last couple of sentences they faded out sure so when you received all these letters from your books um, over the years, and, and especially at the beginning, you received a huge flurry, uh, thousands and thousands of letters from other people who had experienced this. When you responded, 
What was their response to you listening to them and them being heard? Well, when we were receiving well over a thousand letters a day, we quite a few of them didn't get a response. But Anne being Anne, uh, a surprising number did. And she, she, I responded some, but she was the one who responded the most. She completely took control of all of that, of the letters, because they were being, the mailmen were arriving with huge bags of mail and pouring them onto our living room floor in the mountains. And she, oh, she was not completely, uh, not intimidated by it, and she hired a secretary, uh, Lori Barnes, and they proceeded to go through the letters, and she evolved a, a method of, uh, of cataloging them. They typed thousands of them, and the whole thing ended up at Rice University at the, in the Archives of the Impossible. And not all of the letters, but an appreciable number of them, could be at least 10,000, probably more. So they were preserved. Now, when people realized that, I'll tell you, I don't think that there was my sending them letters and their response was all the most important, or my important part of it. The important part of it was that one after another, people responded to that face, to those big black eyes. It was like a mnemonic device. It, it caused them to remember things that they had, that had been buried. It was like a trigger of some sort. And th that was why so many people wrote about it. That was actually was the first moment of contact, was a moment of realization on the part of all of these people that, hey, something very strange happened to me. It wasn't just a, a nightmare, it was something else. And yet, at the same time, if you, you, if you were thinking, well, it was the generation of folklore or uh, suggestion, it would have been a flood of letters that were similar, describing experiences similar to mine. But in fact, the letters describing abductions were quite rare. The actual experience is infinitely more complicated than that, involving just all kinds of different types of interaction with the visitors. So it's, it's it, under the surface, it's far more complex and far richer than we have allowed ourselves to believe because we've got a situation where in the UFO community, they will filter out things that don't fit their expectations. In the scientific community, they filter out everything. Um, and the government lies about this because, in fact, it is true and they know it and they can't do anything about it and they don't understand it. And that's not a healthy combination when it comes to a military organization like the Air Force that's supposed to protect us from threats from, the, from above. And um, they can't even tell us whether this is a threat or not. Only we think they can't tell us it apparently is from above, but that's not even entirely clear. So uh, I can't say that 
when I responded to individuals that that was all that important to them. What was important to them was getting their story on paper, getting it out, realizing something had really happened to me, sitting down and writing that down. That is the, the real record of contact, is those letters, of early contact, is those letters. Um, are there any plans to um, make public the archive footage, all the interviews? Uh, the archive letters, or are you talking to me? Oh, no, sorry, talking to, uh, well, whoever wants to uh, take this, but it's probably a Randall question with regards to all the John Mack footage, you know, the aerial school, is there a, a, a plan to release that to the uh, public, make it available, the archive? Uh, not yet, uh, but I, you know, people own this footage. Uh, is that too close? Okay, uh, people own this footage, uh, seven different people I had to license it from. So I'd love to do that. That would be, I mean, it's just, there's so much of it, it's great. Um, but I don't know how to do that. You know, funding-wise, I have to pay for all that. It's really expensive. Um, and yeah, but I mean, my intention would be to share that. Um, I have a friend doing a, a behavioral study Essentially, it's really amazing. Um, on all these kids, their body language, their uh, all, all kinds of different factors, and um, um, that I would like to make public as well at some time, because it also says a lot about how they behave, and very small actions or movements that they made that signal truth, um, or deception, you know, it's mainly the truth, but there, there's, it's a whole science of deception or truth um, through the body and all movements. Um, and I want to put out a shout out to Sean, a great friend of mine from Chicago, for his help. Um, just try slip something in there. Okay, so um, we're going to wrap it up here, guys. Um, this is an amazing uh, audience that has stayed here. Usually they slowly start to leave. All of you guys are glued to your seats. There's probably glue on your seats right now, which is why you haven't left. Um, um, so I just want to say, where do where do people who are listening to this and, and the world in general, how do they see your guys' film? Uh, right now we have it um, through our website that goes through Vimeo. Uh, for now, aerialphenomenon.com and. Um, and then we're very soon deciding on a major platform like Amazon or Netflix or, you know, we've been going through a lot of decision making and, and then also when, when's the right time, you know, to, I kind of trust my gut on that. Um, maybe I shouldn't, but I do. And I think I'll know when, when that time is right. And um, I really want to get this film out, out into the world, you know, that was one of my goals from the beginning. Once I, once I was 99% convinced, um, I wanted to share it. It's on my wall in my apartment where I started the film, you know, to share this film with the world. And uh, if I have to travel all around the world, I'll do it. I just think it's one of those stories that it's, it's kind of important. Um, yeah. Christopher? Um, what is, uh, 
What are both of you guys up to next? What is your next project? Oh, well, I, it's not UFO related currently. I mean, I do a lot of things. Uh, Chinese surveillance state, uh, income inequality, and the need for organized labor. So, you know, um, I'm all over the map. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so. All right. Uh, what are you up to, uh, Randall, next? What's your next? Uh... Uh, I have two or three other films that I already shot. Uh, while I was in Zimbabwe, I also interviewed anybody else that had a story about this phenomenon. So I have hundreds of interviews from kind of the research phase of, of me making this film. I interviewed everybody I could that, that I thought was credible or had a credible stance uh, in the world and, um, and, and not. Um, so the military has been much more uh, forthcoming uh, in the Pentagon as well. Uh, this over the last several years, I mean, it started. The openness to this started really in December of 2017. That was a New York Times article. Uh, and the Pentagon, the guy who led the Pentagon program investigating these things, uh, became a whistleblower, essentially. Um, but uh, it's, it's, a lot has changed, and uh, we have a lot of questions to answer. I mean, that's kind of exciting, actually. Uh, wow, that's a mind blower. Um, so anyway, yeah. So yeah, we do have a lot of questions because we have a live audience. Um, so those on Zoom or, or the uh, or YouTube, all the other social media can't see, but we have a uh, pretty good um, uh, turnout here for this premiere. And um, we do have questions that we will get to later. Sorry, we won't be able to get to any chat room questions because uh, of our technology here, or lack thereof. Um, so um, I do want to ask you a quiz question, Christopher. Um, how did you come on board this, and how did he infect you with this compelling? <laughs> it's a minute, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I mean, I've known Randall since high school. That's the connection. We went, we went to high school together, uh, so pretty much since I was 14. But um, our paths diverged, and then he was working on this project, and I was very skeptical. Uh, and then I watched the footage, and I really sunk into the footage. And then I was like, there's a great story here. And there's just a great story here. Whatever you believe at the end of the day, I mean, it's just a great story. And that's what I do, I'm a storyteller, so I like to tell good stories, and this is a great story. Um, and in the course of doing that, I certainly uh, have come around. I, I can honestly say that I don't think I've seen anything other than these kids that has come close to convincing me of, of proof, if you will. And even that's not proof to some people, but those kids are not lying. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Whitley, but first I just want to say, um, yeah, this, this isn't, uh, just for if there's anyone out there who, I mean, in our audience, they just saw the film, but for those of you who are listening, the aerial school phenomenon uh, happened in 1994, and it involved 60-plus kids who um, saw basically a, a craft land and three beans get out. It was also witnessed by a teacher, and, um, and this was in broad daylight. This wasn't, you know, sleep paralysis or anything. This, this happened. And, um, and so uh, this, this whole film and everything came about that one event in 1994, and everyone still, you know, sticks by, as you'll see in the film. It's fantastic. 
It's not a UFO documentary, it's a documentary period. That's beautiful. Uh, Whitley, here's my question for you, sir. Um, having been through several, um, since you know, your childhood, encounters um, with the visitors, uh, what do you think about the, the fact that they did not come, these visitors did not come at night, they did not, you know, take you whether you wanted to come or not. Um, they kind of had the best of both worlds in a way. What is your uh, 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 take on that? Well, uh, daylight encounters are quite common. Uh, the, uh, the letters that Anne saved, in fact, I would guess that close to half, maybe as many as half of them, involved daylight encounters. Uh, I haven't had, let me think back, I've had one or two, I have some big, actually, daylight encounters. They're not that uncommon, I wouldn't think. Hmm. So when you see them being, uh, the fact that they had this interaction, it was very profound, and, and some of them received messages and stuff as well. Um, and they were able to like have that experience and walk away, that was it. For you, it's been this, this lifelong thing. It doesn't sound like they've had any other encounters, but as usually, there are some you know, side effects. When you see this, what, what is this like for you to see this story? What was your, your first reaction when you heard about this case and seen um, Randy's movie? Well, I actually heard about it first from John and, and called me about it after he got back from Africa and said it was the most important case he'd ever found. And he said, he, he, we talked a lot, the reason he was called me was because of the environmental message that had come from the children. And as soon as I heard the part about the trees going down, I knew there was, this was an authentic, this was authentic because I don't understand, don't think it, the children would have understood the significance of that. And at the time, the fir my first remembered encounter in my adult life, place in October of 1985, and involved, among other things, seeing the entire planet on fire. And uh, one of the dangers is that as the biome declines, the ability of the, the oxygen level in the atmosphere is going to also be disrupted. And the visitors seem to be warning about that with this statement, so I was pretty taken by it. it I, I, John was completely convinced of this case, and the more I've learned about it, and this wonderful movie just makes it so very clear uh, this happened, and not only did it happen, the next step, it, we've got to understand what exactly they meant, warning us about things like, like the trees coming down and warning us about a very interesting one of the warnings. Other warnings is about technology, getting too lost, as it were, in technology. And in 1998, I had an encounter with a man I called the Master of the Key. It's, I wrote a book, little book that's just basically a, a dia the dialogue. And one of the things he warned about 
This was in 1998, was, it, was artificial intelligence. And I asked him at one point, are you uh, an intelligent machine? And he just said, if I was an intelligent machine, I would deceive you. And I think the direction that we are going with right now with technology is the exact direction that those entities warned those children about in 1994 and that I was warned about again in 1998 by another entity who was much more pleasant to look at but equally strange in his own way. Hmm. Um, uh, I want to move on to, to Gunter with the same kind of question. When you came after the fact that you've been studying the phenomenon for a while with uh, Susan Hansen? Cynthia Hine. Cynthia Hine. Cynthia Hine. I was another researcher. Um, so, how did you come into this and, and you know, what was your reaction hearing this and what did you know about the phenomenon beforehand? Well, when I came to Cynthia Hine, uh, we heard about the aerial school phenomenon. We, uh, uh, Tony Leach, the BBC reporter, and uh, he mentioned, he called Cynthia on the day the phenomenon happened and uh, told them that to hear that there's a, a UFO sighting and landing at a school in Ariel at about 10 past, uh, going past 10 in the morning. And she was uh, said, no, I haven't heard anything yet. And um, they contacted the school and yeah, you know, we spoke to John, um, Colin Mackey, and asked him to do some drawings, asked the kids to do some drawings, and they came in on Monday, because we came to the school the Tuesday, which was for four days just after the event, and had the opportunity to speak to the kids. And um, when we went there, we didn't get the environmental message, uh, because mostly, since you were targeting, what did you see? Um, did you see the craft? Or where did the craft land? And the situation stands. It's only when John Mack came and probed kids more directly what they felt, what they experienced, that they, you know, they brought out this message of environmental. Uh, problems and technological problems that are arising, which we can see in our lives now, you know, uh, global warming, uh, technology getting out of hand, the internet, etc. There's been a lot of that in the news now, so it's quite relevant to what's happening to our lives currently, you know. Um, and, yes, but <laughs> So, looking back, uh, at this um, Gunter several years later. Where, where do you kind of sit with this? Is this something that, that you've carried along with you? Do you feel like in a lot of way, ways, because I know that people who don't just have that experience, but people who are around that and talk to people, sometimes you have your own kind of side effects from this. Do you feel like um, there's been a really strong um, trail? Yes, I mean, I've, been, I've carried this around with me ever since, you know. And 
funny, at the time I was working for an environmental organization called Action Magazine. So I was involved in environmental issues. So this message, message resonated with me very strongly. And uh, so it doesn't leave me. It just kind of like, I just uh, think about this case ever since. And when I see what's happening in the world, particularly now, it brings back those messages again and again. So uh, I hope, you know, I always hope that there's going to be some change, but sometimes when I see some of the government decisions that are being made, it kind of despairs me because we seem to be falling back into the old, uh, you know, here we, the government is kind of going, because we have a fuel crisis because of the Ukraine war, etc. in Europe, and uh, instead of the government reinvesting to, you know, like, renewable energies, which are becoming quite cheap now. They're going into like fracking and putting more money towards more drilling for oil, etc., which are resources that are limited and uh, causing the problems that we see in the world in terms of the climate change. Hmm. Um, so, Randy, when you started out, Pursuing this, what was your first idea of what this movie was going to be about, and how did that change? Um, that was, uh, I really didn't know what the movie was going to be about. In, in the beginning, I, I felt like, because there's hours and hours and hours and hours of these kids. Not only did John Mack and the BBC interview them, Nikki Carter interviewed them, um, Seven different sources, all at different times, uh, from the you know the right away to a week later, two weeks later, six months later, a year later, and then a year and a half later. So my first idea was, why don't I just play the footage raw? <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't think that was a was a great idea, but uh, that's the way it impacted me. I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. Just watching the raw footage. Um, and then I, I kind of shifted into a mode of, uh, of trying to make sure this really happened. Um, and that's when I kind of lost my, I wasn't doing creative things anymore, I was doing investigation work and um, being an investigative journalist. And that, that was nothing I expected to do. Um, and just started collecting data, 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 recording interviews, and trying to prove it out through the first, I think I've made this film five times. Uh, I did the more science version in the beginning of, uh, you know, telling you exact times and moving, you know, everything like a, a, a crime scene, essentially. Um, and, then I reached a point where I was convinced, uh, and that took years. Um, and it had to do with the, the archival footage, and also it had to do with the adult witnesses who I interviewed, and most, um, a lot of the people that I did interview, I think I said it before, but um, didn't want to uh, be on camera. And um, that said a lot. Um, and and then uh, and then Christopher came along, 
and uh, uh, I, I, he schooled me. I gotta tell you, you know, he, 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 he schooled me, and that's really true. Um, and got me back into the creative, and looked at the story in a way I never looked at it, which is just the story. Um, and leaving people's opinions, leave it up to them, not try to prove anything. You know, it's like, this is the story, that's why I chose not to do, use a narrator. Uh, Dan, Aykroyd won, Dan Aykroyd wanted to narrate this film, and I had to say no to Dan Aykroyd. You, wait, you turned down a Ghostbuster? I did. <laughs> and I didn't want to at all. I thought that was have been really cool, but I made the decision that, you know, the people that need to tell this story isn't me. And do I have enough footage so they can tell it? All first person, you know, no third person. Oh, I heard this, none of that. And, um, yeah, Christopher was key to helping me figure out how to tell it. It's a complicated story. And there's so many stories, like our rough cut was four hours and we had to cut it down to an hour and a half. And, you know, and I shot 600 hours of film. <laughs> so we whittled all that down to an hour and a half. But, um, and when Christopher came along, um, things started to happen. And then I get set in also that this is a lot of work. Uh, not that it hadn't been to this point, but uh, I owe a lot to Chris, I owe a lot to Rick, I owe a lot to Rebecca Rideout, who's here, she's been amazing. And Dan uh, Kanowski as well. Um, and uh, I'm missing anybody on the group. <laughs> The caterer. Oh, the caterer, yeah. That you didn't have? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, we did. It was pretty, it was pretty guerrilla filmmaking, I have to tell you. I'm the editor, and I shot second unit camera. There's a good idea. Yeah, like, <laughs> I did every single, every single job, and uh, that was cool. I really, it was fun, but it was really difficult, yeah. Um, a question for Christopher. Sorry, we've had sound issues, so. We were texting, and so hopefully it's remedied at home there and going back and forth between our operations, so hopefully it has been remedied. Um, Christopher, when did you come into this? Did you see his first cut, or did you just get the footage wrong? No, I, I saw the, well, I guess the investigative cut with the maps and the arrows and the date stamp and all of that. And, and I just said, you know, from my perspective, it, it, it didn't convince me, it's just facts. What convinces me is, is the people. And, and I find in all documentaries, um, it's gotten so bad now with all the polarization and fake facts and all this crap. In the old days, facts were facts. You tell a story based on facts, and you can't do that anymore. So the only way to really shift the needle is emotions, because um, you can't argue with them. And those kids, I mean, we've had psychologists, psychiatrists watch this, and they're all like, they're not lying, you know. So that's, that's why, that's essentially why. And then, as Randall said, I mean, I just tell stories. So I try to synthesize the brain, you know, and the footage that we were able to capture and working together to make it, you know, story. Well, it was a, it was a great partnership. Um, Whitley, you knew John Mack, and both of you kind of, uh, everything, I mean, yours started in the, you know, 
later 80s. John came in a beat later. Um, what had you heard about this case in regard to John, and did he talk to you about it before he went or when he came back? Well, yeah, we talked about it at length. He was, um, he, as I said earlier, he telephoned me and said that he had just gotten back from Africa and he's taken a lot of film and he thought it was the most extraordinary UFO, a close encounter case that he had ever investigated. And um, he was, he talked about, to me about it specifically because there was a, an environmental message and he knew that had already, that had already been very much in my, in my work. And uh, we discussed it, and at the time, I said to him that I ex we, essentially what I said earlier, but I also there was something else we discussed, which is why is it, and this goes for not just this incident, but many others, that this comes in is so obliquely. In other words, you would think that if someone came from a we went to another planet and we knew that their world was ending because of the way they were, their, their civilization was evolving. Wouldn't we try harder to warn them than to go to a few school children in an obscure corner of Africa? And the, this warning is, it's persistent in the close encounter experience. It's, that's not the only place that that warning has been heard. It's been heard by many, many witnesses, but the whole phenomenon is so marginalized that the message doesn't really matter in the larger world. And I would think that if it was us going to another planet, one of the first things we would do would be to try to figure out enough of their way their social flow works to go to the individuals who could do something about the problem they were identifying. But this is not what is happening here on Earth. And it's, it's very concerning to me because we're really very far down the road that they warned us about at the aerial school event. And I don't, I'm concerned there's going to be soon, soon no going back if, if that isn't already true. And what can we say? I mean, they warned us, but not loudly enough. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it seems a lot like um, whenever I talk to people about this case, I, I get the same thing. I get, so why go? there and not on the White House lawn. Well, there have been advocates out there, adult advocates, screaming that we needed help forever. And so maybe it's time to skip that, because that's not working, and go to the next gen and say, hey, here's what's going on. And 1994 was before it was what it was now, and before technology. And, um, and so maybe it needed to get reboot, start fresh. Um, Gunter, so when you came out there, um, I'm curious, did you, talking to the kids, um, unfortunately we don't have any of the, the children um, that uh, Randy worked with, uh, Randall worked with on this, but um, did you get a sense of these kids, like, 
how was your barometer? Because you know, you're around kids, you may have kids, you know when they're fabricating stuff and they're given to you know, flights of fancy. What was your take on these kids' uh, testimony? I found kids very critical, to be honest. Um, I mean, in Zimbabwe, usually um, it's in a situation, particularly in like a school environment, the, uh, they're quite strict and everything. So if you lie and all that kind of thing, you know, the kids will be terrified to speak out about something and make up stories, particularly in that situation. And from every kid who spoke to one after the other, they all kind of repeated the very similar story. They saw the craft and be able to feel. Um, some of them heard the sound, some of them saw the, the creatures, even the description of the, the creatures they saw and how they moved was unique. It's not something that you can just uh, make up, you know, like the kids are describing some of the creatures like moving in slow motion or appearing, disappearing and reappearing, you know, a few feet ahead of each other. And even the descriptions of the craft that they saw, because some of the kids saw one main craft and some smaller craft. And I remember uh, when I was with Tim, some boys came to us and said, you know, we saw some of the other craft land over there. Well, because on that day, on Tuesday, we went Signing on it, because I'm so busy still with this project. But I look forward to it. I can't wait to take my first shot, you know, roll camera for the first time. It's always exciting, particularly when you don't know where you're going and how the film's ever going to end up. Um, but I'm kind of excited about that. Okay. To do something new. <laughs> so it's not aerial school part two and three D. Uh, I could easily do uh, an aerial school part two, no question about it. I'd love to show all the other interviews uh, and a making of because during the whole. I mean, I'm I'm in Africa for I lived there about a year and three months and. Pretty much drove around the whole southern Africa uh, alone with uh, forty or fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment in my truck. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um, but it was um, oh man, so many stories. Uh, but the making of is actually a really interesting story because I shot everything and. Uh, it was a ride, so I think I think it would be a really interesting story, um, for sure. Just following what we all did, um, yeah. So, and I have you know I've got some ideas. I've learned how, I've learned to keep secrets now though, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> because boy, you mentioned an idea in the wrong room, you'll see it in the movie theater, and somebody else will do it. Uh, unfortunately, I have to learn that lesson, um, but uh, I look forward to it, and I'd love to work with this guy again, for sure, and uh, I'm learning new friends, like this guy, he's a filmmaker, I love his work, that's, that's, I'm not even, I'm not exaggerating at all. Thank you, brother, I didn't see that on your card, so I guess that that's coming from the heart. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, yes. One last thing, is this merch that you're selling? Oh yeah, I, you know, I had merch to bring here, or uh, it just didn't arrive. Um, and I 
I was like upset about it, and then I was like, you know, that's not important at all compared to what. I'm stealing this. Oh, you can have one? Yeah, this is my hat. But uh, we're going to have merchandise online. Uh, a lot of people love the t-shirts and the hats, and I like, I love the hat. Yeah, so. This is Aerial Scroll. This is an Aerial Scroll hat. That's yeah. pretty dope. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, and uh, we'll, we'll have it online at aerophenomenon.com. Um, yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm really glad that you guys are here for this conversation. Thank you, and I also want to thank, thank Whitley Streeper. Thank you so much for coming here. And, uh, and Whitley, please check out Whitley's work as well. Where can they find you, um, Whitley? Because I know that you've got another book, something coming soon, that's going to drop and be incredible again. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. All right. Good we are out. We're watching clips now. Thanks, All right. Thank you.